Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I'm Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, brother, it's another good topic today. We're going to jump right in. Um, I, I think the feedback I hear often now is uh, guys don't like so much of the chit chat at the beginning of podcasts. But right. anyway, um, if guys would listen to the last episode, um, I think, well, two episodes ago, we uh, have been working through bibliology. There's a little bit of uh, some different topics in between there, um, but we're sort of going through a systematic theology. And Really, the heart behind this is, um, I, I think for me, a, a lot of times the guys in the pews aren't necessarily exposed to a full kind of systematic theology. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, oftentimes, I mean, you and I will listen to talks and it, it's easy for those talks to kind of go off into kind of seminarian level, right? Um, yeah. Instead right. of being a little more foundational, which is all where where we all need to start. So we've gone through bibliology. We've talked about the the word of God, the sufficiency of scripture, the clarity of scripture, the necessity of scripture. Uh, folks can go back and find those uh, podcast episodes. So today we're going to talk, go move into theology proper, which is what we'll cover over the next several weeks. And we may have a few different episodes in between, um, but that's what we're going to be covered. So today, when when we enter into theology proper, if you look in most systematic theology books, you'll find that they start with the existence of God. Yeah. But before we kind of get rolling on that, um, theology proper might not be a term everyone's familiar with. So what what does that even mean? What does that phrase refer to? Well, it's the study of God himself, put simply, um, an understanding of uh, of God and, and what the word reveals about God. Yeah, and that's really all it is. Um, so this is an interesting one. Uh, when we talk about the existence of God, we're talking about proving, or at least this is going to be what a lot of people think. Okay, so uh, you're you're going to prove that God exists, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Now there are different views, and there are several um, different kind of assertions and proofs that are sort of more formalized things that we'll we, we'll kind of get into maybe a little bit here. Um, but why don't you just kind of open us up, Eki, with what does the Bible? have to say when it comes to asking the question, does God exist or, or talking yeah. about the existence of God? Yeah, quite frankly, it doesn't even ask the question. It presumes it. I mean, right from the get-go, you read from the book of Genesis, the very first verse in the beginning, God. Um, so God is presumed to be there from the very beginning. In fact, I often do a little exercise with people just looking at that first verse in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I'll ask them, how many attributes of God can you and you pull out of just that one verse. And in that, you've got the fact that he's got to be omnipotent. Um, he's omnipresent. He's all wise. Um, but he exists and uh, he, he's eternal, right? So, I mean, if he's at in the beginning before all things were created, that means that he's the uncreated one. Um, he has existed from eternity past. So the Bible never tries to make an argument for God's existence. It merely presupposes it. And similar when John writes uh, the gospel according to John Chapter 1, 1, talking about Jesus Christ saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, John never tries to make an argument for God. Rather, he just makes an argument that with God was also Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And so the Bible simply presumes that he's there, and there's many verses that we can go into, but it's it's a really only the fool who denies the existence of God. Yeah. And we should say, as we start about talking about this particular subject, I mean, I think this is the, there's a reverence that's needed really when we approach any biblical doctrine, because these are the things of God. But I think it would be good for us to just state up front. I mean, this is when you get into theology proper, you, you really are walking on holy ground, as it were. And I think one of the challenges, probably more so on our camp than any other, is to make this sort of thing an intellectual exercise. You know, you're learning the attributes of God, you're learning about the existence of God, and it fills your head and you get all this knowledge. But that's really not the purpose of theology right. at all. Right. Right. The primary purpose of theology is to get to know the God who created you um, so that we we can worship God in Christ 
in a right manner so that we can, as Paul says in Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And and so I think when we approach subjects like this, where we're going to talk about who God is, his nature, his being, his existence, we need to approach this really very carefully and very prayerfully and certainly very reverently. Um, You know, it's a weighty topic, right? I mean, we're finite creatures made from the dust of the earth talking about a great, majestic, infinite being right. Um, right. who's unlimited. So, so let, we'll we'll tread reverently and carefully. You know, yeah, to your I, point. I, yeah, go yeah, ahead. I, and I was, I was just thinking about you know Jesus when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. He tells her, "God is seeking true worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth." So it's not just in truth; it's not just in spirit, but it's in spirit and truth. And when he says in spirit, it's by by our inner man. Um, so the truth is meant to move us. It's meant to inform us. It's meant to help us to to better worship. And really, all of the scriptures is there to help fill out um, a true worldview. And when I say true worldview, I mean according to the truth um, that um, exists all around us. You know, we we can't make good decisions if we're operating on faulty premises. Um, we we can't worship a true God if we're operating on a faulty um, understanding of who God is. And so to go to the the Bible to, to try to um, really understand the truth about God, we're really seeking to understand the ultimate reality that uh, that is revealed to us uh, according to God himself. And so that, that really should be the goal of any good theology. It is to increase our quality of worship, but we increase the quality of our worship by gaining a better foothold of what is actually true. Yeah, amen. To your point earlier, uh, you know, the Bible never tries to argue for God's existence. It just assumes it. And I think this is especially important when we're talking with unbelievers, right? Um, I I don't think we ever need to feel like we have to prove God exists. Um, And and we'll get into that. Uh, You mentioned a couple passages that speak to that. Uh, Psalm 10, 4. Is is really you kind of reference this and maybe a couple other because they say similar things, but Psalm ten four says the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his yeah. thoughts are there is no God, yeah. and so it assumes a, a knowledge mm-hmm. of God. Um, it, Psalm fourteen one the wicked fool says in his heart there is no God, yeah. right. Um, and then of course you have multiple Psalms that speak to that. Um, and it's very interesting because of course we have Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, which in in the start of those Psalms, it says that the heavens declare the the glory of God. And then of course you go to Romans one, and I don't think you get any more pointed understanding of the reality that every human is aware of God's existence on some level. So it's not that they're not aware. It's not that we have to prove that God exists because he's made himself known through his creation. The issue, yeah. as Paul says in, in Romans 1, is that man suppresses that truth. It suppresses that knowledge. And so when we're thinking about apologetic conversations um, you know, to the unbeliever, we can always operate with the assumption that they know deep down that there is a God. There's really yeah. no such thing as an atheist. In other words, yeah, I think there are people that have operated according to darkness for so long that they become delusional. Um, they delude yeah. themselves into thinking that God doesn't exist. Um, I've run across uh, believers who say and, and will swear up and down that before coming to know who God was, they really didn't believe uh, in their heart of hearts that there was truly a God. And then I think the only way you could actually come to that kind of conclusion is if you don't stop and actually contemplate um, all that's around you. you. Contemplate how all this came out came, came to be. But yeah, Romans one. You mentioned it. I mean, it is it is crystal clear. And and what happens is in chapter one, verse twenty two says, "Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures." And so we have to understand that a lot of people who deny the existence of God today, and, and you're right, a lot of them will challenge us, prove that God exists. That's what they'll say, prove that God exists. And, and they say that knowing that they're not going to receive what they what they deem to be adequate proof. Um, these are folks that uh, will, will present themselves as being the intellectual, 
that the ones who are far more intelligent than us um, have a have a far better understanding of, of science and facts and objective reality. But the reality is when you look at the scriptures, the scriptures testify to us going all the way back to the beginning that no other than a fool will say that there is no God. The only difference is that fools today have simply become more sophisticated. Yeah. And that's an interesting point because I I was just um I, I was just at a conference preaching with guys who are way smarter than I am. Um, and, and, you know, I think about how, you know, when Paul wrote to Romans, when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, I think sometimes we forget that the people who would have been hearing these letters were not overly sophisticated, you know, uh, super educated people. I mean, these were just everyday people who were struggling to live in a society that was extraordinarily difficult. I think beyond our mm. comprehension w- without doing some serious study. And so the, the scriptures, generally speaking, it, it are, are not difficult. They're not overly complicated. Sure, there yeah. are some difficult things in there, but that should be encouraging to us because it means that the, the man in the pew, look, you don't need to know all of the seminarian words for you know these doctrines. It, it's great. It's a shorthand if you learn them. So I don't want to discourage that. But you can learn all of these doctrines without feeling like you need to go through, you know, four years of of seminary. Um, and and I think more importantly, when we're talking about this topic, the existence of God, you don't need to have the intellect of John MacArthur or you know James White or right. you know the the skills, the apologetic skills of Vodi Bakum. Like you don't have to have those things. What you just need is to know what the Scripture says. Um, and so we understand that scripture doesn't argue for God's existence. It's assumed it assumes it. And so what's right for us to take that posture. Um, we know every believer, you know, or every, every person has something of the knowledge of God. And so we can do things like simply point to creation, right? We can point to the laws in our heart that every man is familiar with. Um, there's a reason that if you go to just about any culture, anywhere in the world, there are laws that they would agree with because they are God's laws ultimately written in the heart of the man. Nobody likes to be lied to, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Um, no one no one thinks it's okay for uh, adultery, at least yeah. not in their own person, right? Um, they, they don't want that to happen to them. Uh, no one's okay with just rampant murder, those kinds right. of things. And all of those are evidences of, of God's existence, really. Um some other places in scripture, uh, Isaiah 41, 4, God says of himself, who has worked and done it, calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, Yahweh, am the first and the last. I am he. Again, the assumption is just that God has always been there. Uh, and of course, there are a couple other places throughout the multiple places throughout the Old Testament where we just see God has always been and he always will be. Uh, and the scripture never tries to convince anyone of that, which makes right. sense because it is yeah. just a reality. Yeah, we, we think about revelation and, and really when we use the word revelation, it's essentially how God reveals himself to, to be who he is. And we divide up often as theologians, we'll divide up revelation into two categories. There's special revelation and then there's uh, general or natural revelation. And the special revelation, that's really the scripture, that's the the gospel, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about the necessity of scripture, how that's needed for both salvation as well as sanctification. But the natural revelation, um, what what is known generally, or general revelation, what is revealed to all people. It's not going to lead you to the knowledge of salvation, because you you need to understand the gospel to be able to receive that. But what what it will testify to is that there is a God. That, that God indeed exists, even if the person may not know the exact identity or at that moment how to find or, or to seek out that God or what is the message uh, from God. But all around us, and, and really it wasn't until I would say recently that this idea of denying the presence um, of God became so popular. Now, we see it in the Bible. So we see the, see it being attributed to the fool over and over again, Old Testament all the way to New Testament. Uh, but really, even in our society, it wasn't until recently that and I, this is very much connected with Darwinian evolution, you know, and the rise of all the, the secularists, uh, secularists who, who really sought to um, 
explain reality without God. You know, you can talk about Darwin, you can talk about Freud, you can talk about Karl Marx, you know, a, a number of, of very influential people who arose seeking to explain uh, various facets of life and reality um, through their own worldview that basically sought to put away God. And, and so we we are surrounded by natural revelation that shows us and what you're talking about is the conscience. We have a sense of right and wrong. That's what separates us from the animal kingdom. Um, we have creation all around us. And, you know, when I go to a place like Grand Canyon or Zion National Park and, and you see just how just how amazingly grand the structures are around you um, and, and it, it gives you a sense of how is it that someone can look at this and think that this came from nothing. Right, or this came by chance, or this came by accident, or this was somehow pre-existing. Only the hands of an almighty God can produce this. And, and it really develops, uh, in me, it reminds me of just how insignificant I am compared to the power of God. And, and it does um, invoke in that moment a, a fear of God that normally I wouldn't think about. But that's, that, that's the role of creation all around us. And when you go to places all around the world and you just see the wonders um, of the world all around you, um, go into going to jungles, going to mountains, going to oceans. You know, I sometimes I, you know, I grew up a beach boy. I grew up in El Segundo. It's a kind of a beach town. And every once in a while, I'll pull up these surfing videos of, of some of these waves in these areas. And it's just, you know, how look at these waves and the amount of power that comes through water and, and how, how we have to have such a, such a deep respect uh, for that. Even surfers that go out and try to surf it, they recognize that at some point, they have to be careful or else they're going to lose their life, right? So, you know, you look at videos of tornadoes, uh, look at the look at what hurricanes bring about. I mean, this is all this is all the power of God being revealed to just through the world around us. And only a fool would look at that and contemplate on it and say, yeah, there's no God, right? So it, it's just, it's obvious. It, it screams about his power and divine attributes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, and if you want to go to other places that just make, God's involvement in creation very clear. I mean, you can go to the book of Job. Um, yeah, right. And, and I mean, if you go through Job, there's a good several chapters, I think starting at chapter 38, yeah. um, where re really, you know, God is challenging Job because uh, Job has sort of forgotten that he's just man and God is God. But, and, and so the, the, the point is God's dealing with that. But in the midst of that, what you see is God kind of, telling job all these different ways where he's he's the one that's in control of these things in fact let, let me just pull it up real quick um job chapter 38 here we go I, I mean so he's so you know job's gone through all this stuff but you get to 38 verse 12 and god says have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place uh that it might seize the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it i i mean the assumption the 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 you know this is god obviously yeah. saying i i'm i'm the one that does this right mm -hmm. to job so he commands the morning uh you go down he says have you ever entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep um where is the way to where the light dwells in the darkness where is its place right and and the point is that god knows these things and and job doesn't and he just goes on and on and on he talks about the the rain and the snow about how he feeds the animals, he causes the mountain goats when even to give birth. Yeah. And you, you go through that. And if you if you're looking for just the ways in which God demonstrates his involvement and presence in nature, right? Um, right, that's that's not the context, but it's there in the passages. Uh, you walk away just with this sense of, wow. God, yeah. God demonstrates His hand in everything. Yeah, um, it, it's it's pretty amazing. In fact, I I would argue that if you need a, a a bigger picture of God, read that section and just read the whole book of Job. Right, yeah. the whole book of Job is God saying, "I'm God, you're not." Um, yeah. If we had exactly. to oversimplify that, yeah, Job, Job, great, great testimony. And, and I think Paul really um, kind of borrows from that concept in Romans chapter nine, when he mm -hmm. says, who are you to talk back to God, right? Um, will, will the piece of clay argue back with the potter? Why have you made me this way? When we understand the creative powers of God, the the inherent authority that he possesses um, as our creator, there, there's a lot um, th there's a lot of questioning that that can be put to rest when we understand that. 
And we understand that he's sovereign, that he operates according to his wisdom, purposes, uh, his, his own pleasure. And, and we are finite beings. God is not. There is always going to be things that God understands that we do not. And this is one of the great lessons of counseling that I try to instill into people, is that when we have this awesome view of God, it has a way of helping us not get lost in questions that we feel need to be answered, but rather it turns us into worshipers who just merely trust God and say, you know what, it is enough that I know that you know all things. It's, it is enough that I know that you are good. It is enough that I know that you are all-powerful and that I just need to simply trust you and your purposes in all this. Um, that That's really what should be the outcome of good theology and, and just having that awesome view of God. Yeah, and you brought up Romans, and that's an interesting passage because basically Paul is kind of dealing with this question that just about everyone has at some stage, right? Uh, the, the the question of evil, which really it, often when you're talking to especially unbelievers, well, if there is a God, what do you do about this? You know, how do you answer the question of evil? How do you answer all of this? And Paul's kind of jumping uh, in the forefront and dealing with some of those very same things here in this chapter. And you go down to verse 13. I mean, just listen to, to how Paul sort of addresses the what about questions. Uh, he says, just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness in God? So we sort of starting to answer the question, well, you know, why, why is that fair, basically? You know, may it never be. Or he yeah. says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. That will destroy Arminian theology. And then he goes <laughs> on. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? I mean, this is a question when you talk right. about the existence of God, right. you get to right. the gospel and the question is always, well, you know, if God made me this way, if God's real, how does he find fault? Well, Paul says, so he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And here's the answer scripture gives to questioning God. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, who are you, oh man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? No. Or does the potter not have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's a powerful section in Romans. And though it's not specifically dealing with God's existence, what we still see here is God is so just assumed all throughout Scripture. We see there are places where we just don't get to ask questions, yeah. right? Um, and this is one of them. And, and I think we don't really get to we 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 don't get to ask the question, or rather insist that God is proven in His existence. Yeah. That's beyond us. Um, just like the issue here in, in Romans. Yeah, and, and I think this comes back to apologetics and, and how is it that we defend God to people who deny that God exists. And just as the Bible does not even seek to argue the existence of God, simply presumes it and shows the ways that he reveals himself and, and shows that only fools will deny his existence. You know, I, I think we can trust, and I don't, I don't just mean I think, I know we can trust in what God's word tells us. And so when I come across atheists who will try to put the onus on me saying, well, it's up to you to try to prove the existence of God, well, that's not that's not a challenge that I'm obligated to, to answer. And if they're already at that point where they're willing to deny everything that's all around them, well, I'm pretty close to the pearls before swine kind of thought, where I'm just going to say, look, God has revealed himself all around you. He's revealed himself in your conscience. He's revealed himself just in our inherent understanding of good and evil. And that's a lot of what you were talking about uh, earlier on in the podcast. So I, I don't get caught up in trying to go through all of these proofs that, that God exists. Certainly, you can turn to science, and I believe true science has done a lot more um, to support uh, the existence of the supernatural. Um, you, you can go to apologetic websites. You can go to, you know, the latest discoveries in archaeology and, and the world. You know, the, the fact that, you know, you can look at uh, places that uh, where you have 
you have these these layers that were created by Mount St. Helens that prior to that people would have thought would have taken millions or billions of years to create to when in reality it took like what days or weeks or something like that. Um, so th there's a lot of different examples that you can go to, but realize this. Let me give a, an illustration. Um, we we know that, that there are flat earthers out there, right? There are people that are absolutely convinced that the world is flat. I do not believe the Bible supports that. Nowhere does it argue that. And only those who um, are, are taking scripture out of context and, and not allowing for any kind of um, uh, sim symbolic, sim symbolic uh, language would come to that conclusion. But there are flat earthers. And, and you can show them pictures taken of Earth from the astronauts, you know, many decades ago, and, and they will find alternative explanations for what you're looking at. In fact, uh, recently I saw I saw someone mention that someone was arguing that, oh, that's all CGI, computer-generated uh, graphics, which is ridiculous because the quality of CGI yeah. really was nowhere, you know, when those original pictures were taken. So that's an example of where you can provide someone with hard evidence and they're still going to stick to what they believe and they will twist whatever they need to twist in order to make what they believe to be true, even if you show them the clearest of evidences. So we have to understand that that's in the heart of man. And there is no other place where natural man seeks to deny reality than when it comes to God himself. They will either deny God exists or they will create a God of their own making who does not match the holy and righteous and just God of the scriptures. All the false and pagan gods that we have throughout history, those are created in the image of man for the purpose of man. But we have to understand that God created man for the purpose of God. We are here to glorify him. He does not exist to glorify us. Um, so we we recognize that, um, that, that man in his nature will seek to deny the true God. That's Romans 3. There is none righteous. There is none who seeks after God, none who does good. Um, together they have all turned aside and become worthless. You know, there is none, none who is good, not even one. So we, we know those, those verses. And, and so we have to realize that until God actually does a work in their heart um, to, to make them turn towards God, you know, we're really just kind of talking to a wall. Now, the situation is not without hope because John chapter 16, Jesus told the disciples that the Holy Spirit, whom he referred to as the Spirit of Truth, is going to come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the truth of God's word, we proclaim the gospel and we leave the work to God. God can take even the most hardened sinner, even the most uh, devoted um, atheist, and turn him into a believer. I mean, just look at you know the 180-degree turnaround in the Apostle Paul. He goes from a persecutor of the church um, to one who's willing to die just for the right to bring the, uh, the the gospel to the Gentiles, whom he had previously hated, just like most Jews did. So recognize that when you are talking to atheists, it is not the onus is not upon you to convince them of what they claim not to believe. The onus is on you to simply just share the truth. And if they start yeah. to act like you have some sort of obligation to prove something, no, you don't. Um, God has already made himself known. And if they continue to deny the existence of God, despite very clear evidences all around them, then realize that this is no different than flat earthers who continue to insist that the earth is flat, despite the preponderance of evidence and pictures, even from outer space, that the earth indeed is not flat. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, you really you really made a kind of a primary point there it is I think oftentimes a lot of Christians get caught up in thinking they have to prove it's their job to prove convince um now th that in and of itself comes from bad theology right yeah. um it, it's not I, I don't have the burden of converting someone to Christianity therefore I don't have the burden to prove God's existence um but this is why believers need to know these doctrines I mean would you know what the scripture teaches about God's existence when you know that all throughout scripture it always just assumes not even does God um try to try to prove his existence then when you have those conversations you're operating from a, more of a biblical view a biblical yeah. understanding and so you can not get distracted by things that um really just keep you from getting to the heart of what we are responsible for which is the proclamation of the gospel right um, and, and and we'll talk about different things. I mean, there are different apologetic methods, and those are okay. But um, a lot of apologetic methods are more philosophy than they are scripture. Yeah. I, I mean, scripture gives us so much more of a of, of, a, of a simple way um, to approach these things, and obviously, it's it's the best way because it's what we have in scripture. So 
we have the proof uh, of God's existence just from natural revelation, right? The Psalm 19 we talk about in the other passage. We also have proof of God's existence just in the qualifications necessary for redemption, right? The fact that God commands, right, one to believe in him uh, no. assumes his existence. So just just the fact that we are able to be redeemed um, proves God's existence. Um, God's eternality. You go through scripture and you see how often God makes the statements, I am who I am. I'm the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and Omega, Jesus says in Revelation. All of those are, you know, just teach us of, of the assumed existence of God. And so we don't have the burden of proving that. We can take people to those scriptures. I don't think that's a bad thing to do ever. And when someone's rebuttal is, well, Either that's a circular argument. You're saying you believe in God because God says he's real. Okay. Yeah, sure. Next question. I, <laughs> a circular argument a circular argument is doesn't mean it's wrong, right? Right. Um right. you know, and so you can just move on. And I think um there was a lot of wisdom in what you said, acknowledging being able to discern whether or not someone is so hard hearted or they've suppressed the truth so much so that that they're just unwilling to hear anything. Yeah. You know, when you get to that stage, hopefully you've at least gotten to the gospel and then you just leave God to do what God, you know, can do. I mean, there've been plenty of atheists who have come to know Christ. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So, you know, it wasn't like Paul who believed in God uh, and then was converted to Christ. Um, you know, and so we have plenty of examples of that. And interestingly enough, um, my my own conversion, and this is, you know, anecdotal. We don't, you know, you don't found doctrines on anecdotal and experience, but it it really was uh, people just asking a few questions, clearly from scripture, that ultimately God used to draw me to Himself. Um, now that might be because I'm a simple person, but um, but the scriptures were the power is, and so yeah. Um, and I think one one problem that is really more of an issue when we take the mindset that we have to prove God exists, I, th I think in that moment, we, it's not intentional, but what we're doing is assuming that God hasn't or can't make himself known or doesn't want yeah. to, um, yeah. at least internally. I don't think that's ever intentional for those who love the Lord, but you know, sometimes we can try to assume roles that just aren't ours to assume, uh, like convincing someone to become a believer, right? It's not our, we can't change anyone's heart. And so, but uh, the, the the reason this is first in systematic theology is because everything else, that this sort of gives you the picture of just God's grandness. Uh, it, it gives you a sense that, not only can we never question the existence of God, because I think believers even struggle with this, right? I mean, mm -hmm. believers who go through a hard time, you probably counsel people like this and they think, well, you know, where is God? Is God real? And so if you wanted a practical application of just asking the question, you know, why do we, why do we care about, you know, what scripture assumes of the existence of God? Well, that's a practical one when it, seems like God is not near, God's not involved, your life's falling yeah. apart, you can know that all throughout scripture, um, you know, God attests to his own existence. This, the whole of the scriptures assume his existence. And so those are things you can hold on to that are tangible, um, that you can say, okay, well, maybe I don't, it doesn't feel like God is near. I don't know what's going on. My life's falling apart, but I know that God is real. My savior yeah. is my savior. And God's working in my life, and you can kind of get past at least that hurdle, because it's one that often comes up, especially I think in in younger, less mature believers. Yeah, and especially in this day and age where people put so much stock and value into their own feelings and emotions, we have to remind ourselves that the reality of God is more important than how we might feel, and that really is one of the greatest values of understanding the truth from Scripture. Is that we have to be able to say to ourselves. What God has revealed to us to be true is not overruled simply by how we feel. So when Jesus Christ gave the Great Commission, he said, Lo, I'm with you until the end of the age. 
that, that tells us that no matter how lonely we may feel, he's always there with us. Now, whether we choose to believe that in the moment or, or not, that, that becomes a spiritual struggle on our part. But the only way to counsel ourselves out of such situations is to counsel ourselves with the truth. You know, I was thinking also of John chapter 17. I just got through preaching through John chapter 17, broken up in, into seven parts. But at the end of the this prayer, he, he prays for all future disciples. And he says in verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. Now, he says that he wants all future dis disciples to be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. Well, think about that. Well, what does that mean? Because talking about the world, and when you read through John, and especially in this chapter, the reference to the world is the reference to those who continue to disobey and rebel and are living in darkness. <clears throat> so when he's talking about that the world will know, this is part of our responsibility, which is to share the gospel. Part of the gospel is helping them to understand who God is and, and to convince them that God, not only do we have, do we know the true God through the scriptures, but God sent his son. You know, the, the whole point of Jesus saying, so that the world may know that you sent me, is really a call to share the truth of the gospel so that the world may come to know who the true God is. And through knowing the true God, they would know the son, Jesus Christ. They're, they're a tag team. They're, you can't separate them. Um, you, you can't deny one and, and acknowledge the other. If you deny one, then you reject the other. Um, so even as we come to the end of the book of, uh, not the book of John, but John chapter 17 and that high priestly prayer, great magnificent prayer, um, the existence of God is there right in the gospel. We are presuming the existence of God and we are pointing to the one whom God sent. And when people challenge us and say, well, how do you know you have the true God? You know, I, I see this argument all the time. In fact, I saw it. Um, on, um, I think it was on Facebook. Um, I just shared one of these uh, memes that that talked about how Jesus Christ is the only true way, and and all the other all the other ways are are false. And and someone um, argued back and then said, well, all these other different ways. How do you know yours is true? That's always the question. How do you know yours is true? Yeah. And and they use that argument as if that was a valid logical argument to say that Christianity must be false because there's all these other religions, you know. And this is. You know, if you really employ good logic, just be it doesn't matter how many false views you have, it doesn't invalidate the true view that is there. And when you compare the worldview of the scriptures, when you compare what the Bible provides versus all other scriptures from all false religions that exist out there, you will see some very clear differences between the two. And not only that, but like I said, John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit is the one who testifies to the truth of God. We as believers, we know that when we received the truth and we looked at the word of God, we, be, we, we came to an unmistakable conviction and conclusion that there is no one else who could have given us this kind of wisdom aside from God Almighty. There is no one else who could put a book together with all the prophecies that are in there. And we know that the prophecies of the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus Christ, we know those were not added after the fact. We have archaeological evidence, though we didn't need it. We have archaeological evidence that show that the Old Testament and all that's written about the Lord Jesus Christ existed well before Jesus Christ came. And so there was, um, I just read, and this will be the last thing I say in this point, but just read the writings of someone, I can't remember his name, but um, but he basically quoted a bunch of Old Testament scriptures about Jesus Christ. And he he, he describes a conversation that he had, um, I believe, with with a Jew, saying, "Hey, let me read for you some verses, and you tell me who you who you think this is talking about." So he read a, a number of clear verses, prophecies of Jesus Christ, and he just read them one by one. And the Jewish person responded, "Oh, that's clearly from your Bible, and it's talking about you know Jesus Christ." Well, he doesn't know that actually comes from his Bible. That that actually comes from the Old Testament. And so even if you were to just do the research and, and just look at the Bible and see how it was put together, see how the prophecies existed before Christ, see how the Bible was maintained over time, um, there, there is nothing, it's nothing short of miraculous, the, the, the divine work of God that we have what we have in the scriptures. Yeah, and I think the fundamental thing that we have to remember when we're talking about the existence of God and, and someone believing and understanding that is that this is a spiritual work that can yeah. only be done by the Holy Spirit to, yeah. to be awakened to the reality, right? We, we all have that knowledge of God. 
just by natural revelation, but to be awakened to the reality of that in a meaningful way, which brings us to Christ, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so one of the dangers of apologetics, and look, apologetics is biblical, where we need to be able to to give a reason for our faith, right? Give a defense, Um, yep. But what we have to guard against is making it uh, a, a worldly intellectual kind of debate. Right, we, yeah. we aren't debating the existence of God, and unless the Holy Spirit moves on the person, which is something neither you nor I can facilitate at all, then that person is going to remain dead in their sins and trespasses, being darkened by the world. Um, and, and so, I just think when we have these conversations, especially in reform circles, we we like to study, we like the knowledge, and that's all good, and we should have that. But I think one of our weak points in the reform circle is we tend to we tend to kind of forget uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's yeah. absolutely essential. And so yeah. our, you know, what we want to do is just point to Scripture, point to truth, and let the Holy Spirit do His work. And that kind of brings us into sort of a next category. You know, just uh, studying the existence of God, you'll you'll find a category of kind of more philosophical proofs, right? Um, and I, my personal take on these would be that they're totally unneeded. They're not needed. Um, you, you can study them. You can know them. You can point to some of them. In fact, we did uh, we did earlier, uh, the moral argument is one of these. Um, mm-hmm. the, the moral argument that uh, speaks really about the, eth- the ethical phenomena in man. Um, we, we have that, and, and that's fine. Um, the problem with all these other arguments... Uh, is that ultimately they're depending on something outside of scripture, right? Yeah. You're, you're reasoning and arguing from a philosophical point of view uh, rather than just going to the scriptures. The scriptures are enough. And you'll find this in apologetic camps, right? Uh, they'll, they'll argue from worldview. I mean, there are guys who, um, I mean, they'll, they, basically they will argue the world with the world's own tactics. Um, yeah. The problem I see with that is, then effectively what you're demonstrating is an insufficiency of scripture when you do those things. Yeah, um, right. I understand the well-intentioned nature, yeah. uh, but the scriptures really are sufficient even for this. Um, so you, you get like, you know, the ontological argument, which is a very philosophical one, which basically is trying to prove God's existence from the fact that man believes that God exists. The fact mm-hmm. that some men believe that God exists proves that he exists. Um, and, and so right. you get into arguments like this, which are very heady. They get into a bunch of metaphysical kind of things. Um, and, and again, I mean, I think it's fine to be aware of those, but for the Christian, for the, for the guy in the pew every day, look, you don't need to know those things. What you need to know is your Bible. Yeah. Um, Amen. And, and I think that would be my my argument, because oftentimes in our camps, we can get caught up in some of these very intellectualized, philosophical ways to prove God's existence. When, when in reality, the Bible never makes a single drop of effort to do any of that. It simply says God created that his power, his attributes are inherent in creation. Therefore, all man knows and then all throughout scripture, it just assumes his existence. And so we've got to not try to do the Holy Spirit's work. And I think we've got to not forget that this is the work of the Holy Spirit um, in, in all of Christianity, but especially when we're talking about the existence of God. No man is going to be converted to Christianity because we had a great argument. We need to be able to give answers. Right. But those answers fundamentally need to be rooted in scripture. I guess that yeah. makes me a biblicist but you know all good christians are so uh we we need to know our bible more than we need to know philosophy i think any thoughts on some of those yeah we talk about the sufficiency of scripture and i think there's a lot of people who um who will say they believe in the sufficiency of scripture but in their arguments they'll betray that so you, you talk about how people will rely upon philosophical arguments or ontological arguments and you know those are you know fine and well but if you think that that's what's needed 
Um, you're functionally saying, and this is just to further back your point, you're, you're functionally saying that I needed something that the scripture didn't provide. And you may not outright say that you, you think that the scriptures are insufficient. In fact, in your heart, you may believe that they are. But sometimes we have to examine our actions and ask ourselves, uh, you know, maybe are, are we intellectually saying one thing, but practically and functionally acting out another? You know, there's um, there's this concept of practical atheism where someone may actually believe God exists, but then they'll function in situations as if God doesn't exist, right? So we, we want to, this is where we want to really challenge our actions to make sure, does this really match our views? And, and this is where the sufficiency of God, and especially for a brand new believer, look, if you're if you're not that well-versed in scripture, if you're a relatively new believer or you're relatively new to, to, to good Bible teaching and preaching, the sufficiency of scripture is something that you're going to continue to grow in your understanding and appreciation of over time. Uh, because I think it's going to be natural that, you know, without understanding scripture more, you're going to naturally resort to arguments that are maybe not the best arguments or arguments that maybe play too much into the hands of um, of human wisdom rather than godly wisdom. Uh, but as you continue to read the scriptures, I, I think it'll open up your mind and open up your eyes and your heart to to really see what we mean by sufficiency. Um, that that really, in the end, uh, at the end of it all, we can be able to say, like Jesus Christ, "Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God." Um, so the sufficiency of Scripture, and we've talked about this before in a prior episode. This is not to say that um, it addresses all of your physical needs. You know, if you're sick, go see a doctor, take medicine, whatever. Uh, but we are saying that it is sufficient for both salvation as well as the sanctification of the believer. And that sanctification covers a broad spectrum. And, and it is indeed a, a spiritual war that we are fighting. And it is spiritual issues that we are often battling. But what the world will try to do, we'll, we'll try to make that into something that it's not. And again, I, I said it in the beginning, this is all about God's word is all about giving us a worldview based upon the ultimate truth, the gold standard of truth. And, and when we start to play into the hands and start playing by the rules of people that don't believe in scripture, well, we start to go away from the worldview um, that is necessary in order to, to stand upon the truth. And, and so that that's the danger. And you, you said one other thing, and I, I do want to add to what you said, because you said something really good. You said that, you know, we we're not an argument is not going to be what converts people. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. And so this is something that I have to often tell people as well. When you're in a discussion with an unbeliever and, and they're challenging various things, well, what about this? What about that? There, there's nothing wrong with coming up with some answers, but, but recognize that your goal is not to win an argument. Your goal is to help introduce them to Christ. And then when yeah. they come to, to know Christ and, and they come to submit themselves to Christ, you will find that a lot of those intellectual arguments will disappear. They'll, they'll fall by the wayside once someone comes and, and has their heart open to the, to the reality of who Jesus Christ was, that he indeed was sent by God the Father, and God gave him up so that he would be able to provide us with forgiveness of sins. That is the heart of the gospel. And it's amazing how many people, you will see this practically, when people come to an understanding of the gospel, a lot of their other um, objections elsewhere become irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think before we start even answering these questions, you know, we need to have a bit of a heart check and ask, do, is it is it the soul of this person that I care about or is it winning an argument, right? Am yeah. I just defending for the sake of defending or or am I defending in, in hopes that this person comes to know Christ? Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, I'll tell you, if, if you're just trying to win an argument, which our society naturally gravitates that way, right? It, it's all about arguing and it, we just see that all over the place. Um, it, if that's the heart, then not only will you miss the most important things, but most certainly you won't be sensitive and praying and thoughtful towards what the Holy yeah. Spirit might be doing in, in the moment um, because you're just trying to win an argument. And so you walk away, maybe you maybe you back the person into a corner where they have no answers. but then yeah. you but then what what really have you done? Because if you leave the argue the, the conversation there, then all you've done is just asserted, you know, some intellectual prowess over someone else. Maybe they weren't as good of an argument, an, an arguer, a debater. Right. But what about the gospel? Um, because that that's that's what's important. So you get into all these, and so these 
these things we've been talking about are, are what we would call natural proofs, right? Arguing from uh, ontology, uh, the teleological argument happens a lot. It's a big word. It just means arguing from design, right? Um, and, and those are, you get all of these, these natural proofs of God's existence. And again, just the problem is that they fundamentally fall short because they assume something that's needed outside of scripture. So we can argue from design. It's a very popular one. I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but I would say we don't need that. Um, it, you know, God makes the statement that he has made himself known in creation, period. Um, and, and so we can just already assume without having to go and point to all the intricate details of how cells are made or, you know, how the world's designed, whatever. Um, we, we can already just assume that there's something at one stage inside this person that gave them something of the knowledge of God, because God has said that's true. And so we can just go to scripture. And then really, you know, I know it'd be interesting to hear your how you approach this. I typically just bypass that whole conversation. Um, how do you know God exists? My My goal is to go straight to the heart and the gospel. Because I already know they have the answer to that, whether or not they've suppressed it or want to acknowledge it or whatever the case is. Um, and, and so I try to just go straight for the gospel because nothing else is going to convince them other than the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. How how would you typically approach that if you're talking? Yeah, to I think about I'm. Being... I, I am very similar. Uh, I mean, I'll appeal to some scriptural arguments, right? Not that scripture argues for the existence of God. But it, once again, it shows that from all of creation all around us, as well as the conscience that uh, that exists inside of every single man. Um, I, I know some people will um, try to try to help someone understand that they're even the fact that they believe things are good and evil has to come from someplace. Um, I understand that. I believe that's the kind of the Greg Bonson uh, approach to to argumentation, yeah. you know, which is fine. But he, here's the other thing. And, you know, you were saying it and, and I want to make this very clear. Just because someone wins an argument doesn't mean that they're right. Okay, it, it just means that they're more skilled in argumentation. You know, recently, and we've seen the whole ridiculous, uh, you know, math uh, being turned upside down, where people will start to argue that one plus one can actually equal three, or two plus two can actually equal five. And I've read some of these articles. I've read some of the, some of these arguments, and and basically they they twist a lot of truths, but in a very provocative and sophisticated way that sounds really intellectual. So you can get someone yeah. who's totally uneducated, um, not very articulate, yeah, doesn't speak very well, can't really argue, but just says, "Look, all I know is that I put two of this with two of this, and I get four, right?" And they just provide that simple argument, and then someone else comes with this very sophisticated roundabout way of trying to explain how two plus two can equal five. The simpler man might not have an answer for that. All he just says, "Well, look, I put two plus two and it equals four, right?" You know, you might think that the intellectual has won the argument, but the simple man is the one who's right. Right. So I, yeah. I think of what scripture says that God uses the foolish to shame the wise. And look, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively in, intelligent person. So I, I don't think in most circles I'm going to be considered a fool. But the arguments that I put forth from scripture that I believe in scripture will, will often be deemed as foolish. Right. And the fact that I don't um, engage people at an intellectual level the way they think I should is going to be seen as foolish. They're they're going to portray God as that big spaghetti monster in the sky or or the sky daddy, however, you know, whatever words that they they may use. They're they're going to portray me as if I'm foolish. But just remember this: God uses the foolish to shame the wise. Yeah. And so if we just stick to the simple reality of what scripture is, what it says, we are always on solid ground. No matter how clever the, the speech uh, of those who argue against us, and again, that's Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians. You know, I did not rely upon cleverness of speech or the wisdom of man, but I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Just keep it on the truth and and, look, and trust the Holy Spirit to do the rest. But yeah, I'm with you. If someone is wanting to have an argument over the existence of God, I'm just going to share what the truth of the Bible is about Jesus Christ, and I'll leave that to them. Um, I, I really don't have time to go because because I know that these these discussions and debates can be endless. I mean, I've seen some of these folks on Twitter. They're they're going days and days and days just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And and sometimes I'll I'll go ahead and answer a fool, not for the sake of the fool himself, but to provide an answer that would be encourage that would be encouragement to the one who's reading it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but to, to go back and forth, realize there's no end to the fool and how he argues. And that's why Proverbs tells us, you know, to, to be wary of doing that. Yeah. And, and, you know, you make a good point. It, it, there's no benefit to speaking and using language that the person you're speaking to isn't going to understand. And, it, you know, you, you and I both read material that, it, you know, I mean, if we wanted, we could use language above, you know, the average person's head just because of what we do, studying theology. No. But it doesn't make sense to use that language when you're talking to people. If your primary concern is to communicate to them in such a way that they understand, right. um, it, it it's fine. Like right. when we're talking about this, and so we bring up, you know, the the natural proof, the teleological argument. And so you discover that's an argument from design. So you know what that is, and and that's great. And I think those are good things to know. But it's it's for it's better for you to know, so that when yeah. you're confronted with that situation, you just know. Okay, you know what? I don't have to argue from design because, you know, this is an argument that's sort of, you know, extra biblical. I can just stick with scripture. So those things are good for us to use. And I think that's one of the problems with some of these debates is you kind of get in a who has the best vocabulary, you know, yeah, who's, yeah. you know, this kind of thing. That's really not the point. Um, mm. it, you know, and it, as I'm thinking about this, I just think about a man who, by all means, was probably uh, would be considered quite lower on that kind of intellectual mm -hmm. level, but but his book has sold the most um, next to scripture, and that's Bunyan. Yeah, right. He, he in in fact, as I understand it, his manuscripts were so bad uh, that they had to be rewritten to correct all of his grammar and things like that. So it just goes to show that. You know, a, a man who he wasn't stupid, obviously, but he knew his Bible. Um, it, it, you know, a man like that, who his primary focus was sharing the gospel with people, people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that you know, obviously, not not just full of the Spirit, but walking in the Spirit. Right? Yeah. Um, God used that to such an extent that those kinds of things, his poor grammar and all that aside, really didn't make any difference he still produced material that uh, is impactful today um sold only secondly next to the bible so mm -hmm. I, I, so I, I think this is where sometimes we just let our pride go uh nope nobody cares if you know big words you know who else is a good example of this by the way phil johnson um mm -hmm. i would just brag on phil johnson because i, I mean look the the guy is the the editor for i mean he used to work for moody press um, now he edits all of MacArthur's books and stuff out of grace. And regardless of anything else, the, the guy has a vocabulary that's, I, I mean, it's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of people probably don't even know, realize it because he doesn't use, um, you know, the, 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 the fanciest words he knows, you know, he's not, he doesn't use these 15 letter words and I'm sure he could, he yeah. communicates extraordinarily well because he wants people to understand what he's saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I just need to be mindful of, of that. Um, the Holy Spirit's the one doing the work. So you just need to know what scripture says and know the gospel and know how to communicate that. Um, yeah. But studying theology is how you get the, the bigger picture. And I think that, you know, I, I would argue that the, these kinds of studies are, are every believer should be going through systematic theology. Um, and, should, and you should be doing it alongside of being active in your local church and reading scripture. Like, don't ever just pick yes. up a systematic theology book and get all your theology from that instead of reading scripture. That That's not the way to do it. That's how guys come out with just having a lot of intellectual right. knowledge with no heart change, right? Um, mm -hmm. But pick up a systematic theology, and we'll recommend a couple, actually. Um, I, I mean, so... What what's the one that uh, MacArthur has? It's a good introduction. Uh, yeah, the MacArthur and Mayhew biblical doctrine. Yeah. Well, not that one. Um, the fa the uh, fundamentals of the faith is that the one? Is that oh yeah. The, oh yeah. Right for for new believers, fundamentals of the faith is a yeah is is a thirteen lesson course um, that uh, that helps people understand the foundations of Christian of uh, what it means to be a Christian. Yeah that that has some that's a really good introduction. Yeah. I think like if you're just mm -hmm. getting started. Um, with that, uh, the the language is easy to understand. I, I MacArthur's book is really good, but it does use you know it, it does use a bit more academic language. 
Um, yeah. So if you're there, by all means, get it. Um, a- another systematic theology that I like for the most part, Joel Beakey is actually not too hard to read. Um, mm. Joel Beakey's systematic theologies, I think actually I like those the best because J- Joel Beakey, um, his aim and even just writing those, and you can, when, when you're reading through it, it's it's very pastoral in nature. Yeah. Um, and his kind of focus is that the theology changes your heart and your walk with Christ. Yeah. Um, but you can pick up those and kind of go through them. They're, I, I think it's like a three or four volume set like that thick. So it, it's a big word. Um, yeah, those are but, those are good recommendations. Joel Beakey is a very gifted communicator. Um, I would agree with those recommendations. Yeah. So before we wrap up, any last thoughts on just the existence of God? And remember, this is just an introduction. Um, We're going to really start getting into the attributes, character, and nature of God uh, moving forward. So to be a little more specific, but any last encouragements for people on this particular topic? Quite simply, just trust what scripture says. Um, Recognize that the world is in darkness and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help bring people in the darkness into light. So we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. Simply what we're called to do is to testify of the truth. You don't need to be overly clever. You just need to rely upon what God has told you to be true from the scriptures. Amen. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you guys. As always, if you want to send us an email, um, that'd be in our show notes. Don't forget we have a YouTube channel now. So if you're the kind of person that appreciates uh, video a little better than just audio, and and I hear lots of guys out there just, per, they, they need to see the talkers. Um, so <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so if that's you, go to our, go to our YouTube channel and uh, please do follow and subscribe that. And if it's been helpful, feel free to share it uh, to other people. So until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.